Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. The more I study and read the writings of the early church fathers from the first and second century, and in some cases, the third, part of the third century, the more amazed I am. And I have to ask myself, why I never bothered to take the time to read what they actually wrote before. Technically, they are referred to as the anti-Nicene writings, anti-A-N-T-E, meaning before the Council of Nicaea. So these writings cover the period following Jesus to about 325 AD. And it was at that time then that the Roman Catholic Church began to literally take over and push I'm going to say authentic Christianity and its teachings to the side. The many writings were originally published in a series of books containing the following information. Volume 1, Apostolic Fathers Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. Volume 2, Hermas, Tatian, Athenagoras, Theophilus, Clement of Alexandria. Volume 3, Tertullian. Volume 4, Tertullian again, and uh, Minutius Felix Commodian Origen. Volume 5, Hippolytus, Cyprian, Caius, Novation, and an appendix. Volume 6, Gregory Thamorturgus, I think that's how you say his name, and Dionysius, the great Julius Africanus, Anatolius, and minor writers, Methodius, and Arnobius. Volume 7, Lactantius, uh, Venantius, Asterius, Victorinus, Dionysius, Apostolic Teaching and Constitutions, Homily and Liturgies. Volume 8, The Twelve Patriarchs, Excerpts and Epistles, The Clementina, Apocryphal Gospels and Acts, Syriac Documents, and Volume 9, The Gospel of Peter, Diatessaron, Testament of Abraham, Epistles of Clement, Origen, and Miscellaneous Works. And the 10th volume is a bibliography, a general index, an annotated index of authors and works. Now, at one point, Erdman's Publishing had published all of these in hardback. It's very, very difficult to find them. And if you can, it's going to cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So, Whatever anyone wants to know about what these early fathers of church history believed and taught, it's all right there. It's not hidden, but it is available. And even though you might not be able to afford purchasing an entire series in hardcover, hardcover, they're available as downloadable PDFs from Christian Classics Ethereal Library, and I have a link for that in the uh, transcript. Now, most of the men listed above that I went through in their volumes were either direct disciples of the original 12 apostles or once removed. In other words, they were a disciple of a direct disciple of one of the original apostles. But what is most interesting is that these men uh, covered so many different things in their writings. Now, I'm not going to list the entire contents of what they covered, but some of the things included and written about by these men from the first and second and even part of the third century include the authority of the Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ, Calvinism, foreknowledge, free will, predestination, Catholicism, papal authority, idolatry, Eucharist and transubstantiation, baptism, 
Mary, purgatory, and other areas. They also discussed cults, some of which we would recognize today as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. Then they covered areas of dispensationalism, circumcision, the law of Moses, the Sabbath, etc. And of course, they also covered end times events. They covered and included premillennialism, the schism of Nepos, return of the Jews, the apostasy of the church, and the rapture. They then went on to discuss Gnosticism and its many, many different offshoots. Moral issues they covered, such as abortion, euthanasia, suicide, homosexuality, replacement theology, and even women in ministry. Paganism, they covered astrology, astral projection, evolution, ghosts, Islam, meditation, ecstasy, reincarnation, and yoga. And then they also covered the gospel itself. And they also dealt with spiritual gifts. And then they also highlighted text of scripture, some of which we have, some of which we don't have today. Why are some texts of scripture missing in some translations and not in others? That's covered. So while we absolutely have God's authoritative and final word, and again, it is his final word to humanity, and it is profitable for everything we encounter in life, it is also thoroughly beneficial to understand what those who were taught directly or once removed by the original apostles, actually believed and espoused. For instance, it is common knowledge, apparently, that to these men, for instance, that Paul was the author, humanly speaking, of Hebrews. Yet today, Christians debate and discuss it, come to their own conclusions, and stand by those conclusions. But here we find that the early church fathers understood that Paul wrote Hebrews. Why didn't he include his name as the author as he did so often? I'm really not sure if they say I haven't gotten to what they say about that yet. But the absence of Paul's name did not mean to the first and second and even third century church fathers that Paul didn't write it. He did write it, but simply withheld his name. And I'm guessing, until I find out otherwise, that it's likely due to the content of the information presented in the book of Hebrews, which ultimately is about Jesus and the superior role he played, uh, as opposed to, for instance, the law of Moses. Now, in this particular series, this is the first part in this series, and I'm not sure how long I'm going to go, I'd like to cover issues that were important to these first and second and even third century men because of what they had to deal with during their day. I mean, I think sometimes we forget how difficult it was because Christianity was so new and it was being rejected by the Jews, it was rejected by Romans, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they had a lot on their plate that they had to deal with. And I find it fascinating that the same things we debate or even argue about today were also important to these men, and they responded to those issues authoritatively. It is because most Christians are completely unaware of these men and what they taught um, that we waste our time arguing over things that were already fully settled in the first few centuries. But what happened in the third century to cause such a shift in thinking that had already been regularly taught, believed, embraced, and espoused? Well, it was essentially the creation of the Roman Catholic Church. And there's a great deal of evidence that the Roman Catholic Church was birthed through paganism and Gnosticism. One of the pagan errors of what became known as the Roman Catholic Church were, once it was introduced, all manner of harmful doctrines became normal 
and other solid doctrines that had been believed, practiced, and preached for several hundred years were pushed to the side and eventually off the table completely. Now, Satan wasted absolutely no time in watering down the gospel and introducing as much error as he could into the newly created church. Some of the writers of the New Testament warned about the coming problems that they saw and they knew. Paul talks about the fact that he knew once he was gone, wolves would come in and pervert the teachings that had been given to him by Jesus Christ. So the Roman Catholic Church began introducing literally heresies, like, for instance, amillennialism and replacement theology, as well as others like Mariology, transubstantiation, purgatory, and other things, as I've already noted. It's difficult to believe that Satan would work that hard in his attempts to derail the fledgling church, right? But we need to stop and say, why wouldn't he? Of course he would do that. So amillennialism and replacement theology are two schisms, false doctrines, in my opinion, that have derailed a more literal understanding of Scripture. Amillennialism teaches that there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus following the tribulation. This, they say, is too short of a time for Jesus to reign. He's God of the universe. So amillennialists see Jesus' first coming as the actual start of the millennial kingdom. They call it kingdom now. And his return to this earth will be the consummation of that reign. So it started when he came the first time. It will end when he returns uh, in the physical sense at the end here. For an amillennialist, this 1,000 years is simply a figure of speech, but definitely not an actual 1,000-year period. I mean, it's already been over 2,000 years, correct? Well, in other cases, the early church fathers were very clear about events happening at the end of this age. And by the way, they also believed that there are three ages. The first age was from creation, which ended 2,000 years later, and the second age is from the end of that first 2,000 years to incorporate a second 2,000-year age. And the third age is another 2,000-year age that follows that for a total of 6,000 years. The end of this 6,000 years will bring us to Jesus' second coming and the start of the millennial kingdom, which will last 1,000 literal years. In other words, the full scope of humanity's timeline, including the final 1,000 years when Jesus reigns, equals 7,000 years. They base this on numerous things, but also specifically on Peter's comment that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, 2 Peter 3, 8. And of course, if you read many commentators, they'll all give you their opinion on that as well. But I don't know too many commentators that go back to the first, second, or third century early church fathers and ask what they meant. Some do, but not enough. So, Here's some writings from some snippets of what they have to say from the early church fathers. Justin Martyr said, there will be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Tertullian said this, millennial reign, resurrection, and the new Jerusalem are literal. Commodianus said this, resurrection is at the end of the 6,000 years. And by the way, some of them also figured out that the end of the 6,000 years would end right around, I think it was either something like 2,000... 
2030 or 2050 or something like that. So here we are in 2024. So if they were correct, we'll see what happens for those of us who will still be alive then. Um, let's see. Commodianus uh, also said this, those who are not martyred under the Antichrist will marry and have children during the 1,000 years. There will be no rains, snow, or cold during the 1,000 years. And then finally, one other quote by Lactantius, there will be a total of 6,000 years until the millennium. All right. The point is obvious, or should be. Those early church fathers who were taught directly by the apostles in most cases— or once removed, understood that a literal 1,000-year period was coming to this earth, in which Jesus would reign supreme over the entire earth and global society. Yet, today, we argue about these things and even separate ourselves from one another because of these disagreements. I guess that may happen if people are totally unmoved. But why aren't we going back to the early church fathers, who took up the responsibility of shepherding the church's flock after the apostles died or were were martyred. So regarding the return of Jews to Israel and the rebuilding of the tribulation temple, Arrhenius taught the following. And by the way, this is throughout scripture, Daniel, Micah, other places as well. So here we are, the return of the Jews. Here's what Irenaeus taught. The Roman Empire will first be divided and then dissolved. Ten kings will arise from what used to be the Roman Empire. The Antichrist slays three of the kings, and he is then the eighth king among them. The kings will destroy Babylon, then give the Babylonian kingdom to the beast, and put the believers to flight. After that, they will be destroyed by the coming of the Lord. Daniel's horns are the same as the ten toes. The toes, being part iron and part clay, means some kings will be active and strong, while others weak and inactive, and the kings will not agree with each other. You know, as I read this, this is the first time I've understood that particular meaning about the toes and the clay and the iron. I've, I've read so many different commentators who don't ever allude to that. They give their own reason why they think or what they think part iron, part clay means. But here's somebody um, from that particular first, second, or third century who says the toes being part iron and part clay means some kings will be active and strong while others weak and inactive. And the kings will not agree with each other. Now, Irenaeus also states in A.D. 177, long after the temple of Jesus' day was destroyed by the Romans, by the way, and that's important to consider, here's what he said, the rebuilt temple will be in Jerusalem. He's talking about a literal rebuilt temple, and it's going to happen in Jerusalem. So he wasn't looking, he wasn't alive when the uh, temple of Jesus' day was standing. Tertullian says this, quote, the Antichrist will be a real man and sit in a real temple. Origen's position on this was, quote, the prophecies of 1 Thessalonians and Daniel are real prophecies about the end of the world. There will be a literal rebuilt temple, unquote. Interesting. And the church fathers also discuss what is meant by the apostasy of the church in the latter days. We will get into that in another article in this series, but it's amazing how much they talked about. It's amazing the topics they covered. Well, let me end this particular article 
this part one with an important topic to me, the rapture. Now, as you know, there are several varying positions on this particular topic. Pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, pre-wrath rapture, post-tribulation rapture, and then, of course, there are those who believe there is no rapture at all, period. Okay, so what did those who were directly taught by the apostles understand about the rapture? Is, is that something we should even pay attention to? Attention to? Well, I believe so. And since they got their understanding directly from the Lord's inner circle of 12 men, the question is, how could they have misunderstood if their view of the rapture is not correct? Maybe one, possibly two early church fathers might be mistaken, but when taken as a whole, the early church fathers agree on this and other issues related to the end times. Should we take that into consideration when we open God's word? I think so. But readers, of course, can do whatever they want to do. So you're free to disagree with me. But here's what Irenaeus stated in Against Heresies. He said this, quote, when in the end that church will suddenly be caught up from this, it is said there will be tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning nor will be, unquote. Now, if you take what he says, just that statement, there's room to sit there and go, well, maybe he's talking about a mid-trib position or mid-trib rapture position. But the more you read Irenaeus, the less you conclude that. Here's what Cyprian said, quote, We who see that terrible things have begun and know that still more terrible things are imminent may regard it as the greatest advantage to depart from it as quickly as possible. Do you not give God thanks? Do you not congratulate yourself that by an early departure you are taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent? Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us hence and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. That is from Cyprian. Ephraim the Syrian makes it even more clear, quote, because all saints and the elect of the Lord are gathered together before the tribulation which is about to come and be taken to the Lord, unquote. And by the way, there's discussion today about how long the tribulation is. Well, the early church fathers understood it to be seven full years. So we can disagree with them, but again, they were closest to the apostles. They were taught by the apostles. There's so much there in the writings of these men. I've just only very, just scratched the surface. I'd like to recommend that everyone avail themselves of their writings. You can go online at the Christian um, Ethereal, what, what, what is it here? Christian Ethereal Library. And uh, I've got a link for that in the transcript. You can go there and download all of those things as PDFs for your computer, studying them at your leisure. And I'd like to recommend that everybody get them. No, what they say is not inspired as God's word is inspired, but neither were Paul's or Peter's sermons inspired as God's word is inspired. Or any pastor today who teaches and preaches specifically expositionally from God's word, those aren't necessarily inspired sermons. They're based in the truth of Scripture. So what these men taught was the truth they had learned from those who walked closely with Jesus for roughly three and a half years. 
It should stand to reason that what they have written, having come directly from the apostles or a disciple of one of the apostles, has merit and deserves our attention and consideration. Does it not? We will be back with another installment in this series that might offer insight into doctrinal and theological areas that will help us understand more clearly what the apostles actually taught. So until then, I pray that the Lord will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in Him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 